I meet a lot of you guys, like every Sunday, if you're new, I love to meet people. Uh, I love to remember names. I like to do that. That's helpful. But uh, as I remember names and as I know people and I get to know them, I've over years connected a lot of names with character or personalities. I mean, like you meet a Brad and you're like, yeah, you're a Brad. All Brads are Brads. Like, you know that? No? Okay. Maybe it's Chelsea for you. I don't know. But there's... For me, I'm like, okay, yeah, I know all you guys. Uh, I met like four of you, and you're all the same, so all Brads are this way. Just, I do that. But in this story today, that we have this problem, because I, I have, uh, in this story, I have an Aunt Debbie, and I grew up with, with Aunt Debbie. She's my mom's sister, and, and Aunt Debbie has some quirks. She has some things about her that I just think about. When I think about a Deb, I think about a Deborah, I think about Salem Lights. That's what I think. That's, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I'm thinking smoking cigarettes. That's what I'm thinking. And so I'm going into this text, Judges 4, and I'm seeing Deborah. I'm like, judge all these things under the palm tree. And, and, and as I visualize, all I can see is just like, yeah. what's the issue? <laughs> you know, like, just, <laughs> Like, that's like a I'm like, okay, I can't do that. All right, so I can't do that. But let me tell you what you can't do. Because maybe you don't know a Debbie, but we all know a Barack, okay? So take it easy in this story, okay? When you visualize, when you think, when you hear the intonation of his voice in your mind, okay? I'm saying that. We've got to set some aside this time. If you associate the things and then just see what is happening here. And this story is fantastic. Judges 4, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, please get it. Please see this story with me. Miss Chris just read the intro just to kind of whet the appetite of what's about to happen. But Judges 4, verse 1. Here's the cycle again. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth of the nations. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Again, we see this. Evil, oppressed, cry out. Why did they cry out? Because Jabin had 900 iron chariots, and he harshly oppressed them 20 years. All right, now, Jabin, if you know Judges, if you read Judges before, or if you've ever tried to mess with understanding Joshua and Judges, this will give you some problems. Because if you read this, it seems very similar to the account in Joshua's 11 of King Jabin being uh, 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 killed and the city of Hazor being destroyed completely. And then now here we are again with another King Jabin with Hazor again. How is this happening? Didn't Joshua completely destroy the land? Uh, the problem's not with Jabin, because that's just the dynastic name. That's repeated all the time, so you know that. When Jabin's, you know, there's a Jabin 400 years ago, and now there's a Jabin now. We know it's not the same guy. They pass that name down. But Hazer is kind of the issue. Like, what about this city? Because we are told in Joshua 11 it's completely destroyed. So is this the same story told on top of one another in a different angle because of this issue? No, I don't think so. I don't, think, I, don't think this, I don't think that's the issue. I think just reading the text, understanding what's happened, and seeing how many years may have passed from when we began this story of 
judges that what's possible is that someone from the, the Hazor dynasty left, escaped, uh, uh, took refuge somewhere, then after years came back, sets up regime again, takes decades, but then re-ups, has the, the relationship with the leads of the city-states in, in Canaan, and so then he comes back to power, but then it's very, very short-lived. But then you have those, Jabin and Hazor, those names, that king and that city, and then you have Sisera, and then Sisera is kind of like Shamgar. Who's this guy? It's not, a, it's not a normal Canaanite name. It's an unknown Canaanite name. Where is he from? Oh, wait. He, he sounds like he's a mercenary. Well, based on the form of it, he's probably a Hittite or a, 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 a I can't even pronounce it, a Hurrian mercenary. So like Shamgar was a mercenary. I think I had some ties to, to Egypt. Saw that in chapter three. Now we have this guy, Sisera, Sisera who who's a mercenary, and he's, he's not there to, like, take regime. He's hired by King Jabin to come in and to win this war for him. So Jabin has at least the resources and the power and the influence and the money to, to get this mercenary to come and take charge of his army so that he can uh, defeat the Israelites. Then verse 4 turns and gives us another character. Deborah, a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. Now, I said this last week, you know, up to this point, our judges have not been really judges, like in the courtroom kind of idea we have, but more like guerrilla military leaders, right? But now we have Deborah, who, who's, who's not that, she's not leading an army, she's sitting under a palm tree and selling disputes. But first, first, she's identified as a prophet. Exodus 4, 15, 16, Exodus 7, 1, 2 talks about what is a prophet, what that looks like. Well, it's a, spur it's a spokesperson for God to the people. That's really what it is. And for her, this designation deliberately places her in line of succession with Moses. So you got Moses the prophet, and I got Deborah the prophet. Now, we, we talk about this as a uh, church. It was our rallying cry a couple years ago that we practice the spiritual disciplines and the spiritual gifts. And so a little side note to talk about just in, in when we look at prophecy, when you think about prophecy, when you read about a prophet in the Old Testament and then you see it in the New Testament, how do you make sense of this? How do you think about this? It, it matters. Now, we, we do disagree on this. There's many in this room that kind of think about this, disagree about this. So let me just plainly tell you uh, how we approach this and how we think about this. And I'm telling you why. I'll tell you why. Because it gets to a point. It gets to a point. Now, Old Testament prophecy, you've got prophets like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, who write the Bible. But this is going to be quick. But, but quickly, two things. Number one. The human authors of the New Testament are the apostles. When you think of the New Testament authors, who are they? They are the apostles. They're not the prophets. That's who the prophets were in the Old Testament. They're the authors, right? But here they're called the apostles. Jesus calls those who wrote God's very words down as scriptures apostles. Apostles, not prophets. So they're the counterpart 
to the Old Testament prophets. The apostles are. Meaning, in the New Testament, it's the apostles, not the prophets, who have authority to write the words of New Testament scripture. When the, when the apostles want to establish their unique authority, they never appeal to the title prophet, but rather they call themselves what? Apostles. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 2, says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, Old Testament prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your... <laughs> who's Jesus' prophets? Apostles. That's who. At the end of chapter 14 and verses 37 and 38, Paul even shows how the New Testament prophets are subjected to the gospel that the apostles preach. That the apostles were entrusted with the gospel and inspired by the Spirit to write scriptures, the prophets were not. Verse 37 says this, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I write to you are a command of the Lord. Why? Go back to 1-1. An apostle of Christ Jesus. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So that's the distinction first, just to think about the difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. The, the second thing is the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is poured out in a different way. In the Old Testament, with certain leaders that we'll see like Samson, but others like Saul and David, the, the Holy Spirit rushed on them in a moment and they prophesied or, or tore a lion to pieces with their bare hands, Right? But when Peter quoted Joel 2 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, he says the spirit won't be poured out on select leaders, but on all who trust in Jesus and be on them forever. He says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now. I think with that being quoted in Acts 2, you should ask, if you kind of wrestle with what's the difference between Old Testament and New Testament prophecy, you should wrestle with, with all these people prophesying, are they all speaking in errant scripture that should be written down? And I, I think the logical kind of observant answer that you can see is no. No, they are telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Agassus, Aga, Agassus, Agabus is in the book of Acts, but he doesn't write a book of the Bible. Neither do Philip's four daughters who prophesy. Neither do any of the prophets in Corinth or Rome or Thessalonica. So, when you talk about New Testament prophecy, when we talk about it in our body, we look at 1 Corinthians 14 at the end, 29 and 30, it states that New Testament prophecy is based on a revelation. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. And so, just a quick definition of prophecy would be telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Uh, I think this and the next one are both from Wayne Grudem, and I don't think I'll put it up there. But prophecy consists of spirit-prompted, spontaneous, intelligible messages orally delivered to a person or community intended for edification or encouragement. My goodness, that's a lot. But do you see it? It's very wordy, but that, that, that's, that's what we're talking about. 
Now, if Deborah's a prophet, and we're about to see what she's going to say and how she speaks in the Old Testament, how do New Testament prophets, prophets or the gift of prophecy work? Let me ask it this way. What does God reveal in prophecy? What sort of things are revealed and expected to share? Well, in verse 3 of 14, 1 Corinthians, he says, they are to build up and encourage and console. That gift is then a revelation from the Lord that you hear and then share with that person that they might be built up, encouraged, or consoled. But then in 25, there's one more thing that it adds. The Lord reveals are the secrets of a person's heart. In 1 Corinthians 14, 25. Now, with that said, prophecy is not inerrant. Did I settle some of you guys that were buzzing internally? You know, some of you guys like, Argh. Settle, breathe. Scripture is inerrant. Scripture is authoritative. Scripture is infallible. Our interpretation of both is not inerrant. <laughs> Does that make sense? I'm, I'm double negative you, but you, you hear me? Our interpretation of Scripture is not inerrant. Our interpretation of prophecy is not inerrant. And prophecy in that authoritative regime is subject to Scripture. Uh, just like my teaching and preaching here right now and on Sundays is subject to Scripture. My interpretation and uh, applications may be wrong, completely wrong. I would hate to do that to you, but I'll just, I think I'm humble enough to, to say I probably have, <laughs> and I will. That's why we encourage you to be like the Bereans and search and study the scriptures. And in the same vein, it's why prophecies must be weighed and sifted. Not submitted to it as authoritative word of God, but weighed and sifted. Because you know why? That's a lot of space from God to me. You heard it. You interpreted it. You may have tried to apply it. And then you told me? Yeah, there's a lot of space for errancy in those. <laughs> right? The word in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 is to sift the good from the bad in the prophecy. And hold fast to what is good. So that's why we shouldn't start anything with thus saith the Lord. Never start that. I don't know who you are. Unless it is <laughs> thus saith the Lord. Children obey your parents and the Lord because this is right. Okay. But if you're trying to share a word of prophecy with a brother. No. None of us are doing Isaiah and Jeremiah stuff. Okay. So we're not starting off that way. But we do share with one another words from the Lord. I, I received a report of three dreams yesterday. And I had to sift that, pray about that. And what would that, is that good? Is that good for this person that this is about? How, what is this for? What is the Lord doing? Does this make sense in line with Scripture? Does this make line in sense with God's voice? Does this make sense uh, in sense with, with uh, shepherding these people in this moment? And so we, we wade into this tension of, yes, we believe the gifts continue to operate to build up the body, 
to maturity. And so that we'll enter into that, even with the mess that it may bring, or the confusion, or your objections, because we've seen the, the, the fruit of God speaking to you, to others in this room. You've experienced it. It wasn't you, it was someone you saw crying later. And you didn't gawk at them, you didn't stare at them, but you noticed, yeah, the Lord is doing something. The Lord's working here. So Deborah's a prophet, and we have a few folks in our body that have the gift of prophecy. Done with that sidebar. Come back. Come back. Now she's judging, right, in a more normal fashion. She's settling disputes of the people in the line of Moses. Tim Keller in Judges for You, he says this, she led, not for, she led from wisdom and character rather than sheer might. Deborah counseled and guided the people. So she comes closest to being a godly leader of the people instead of simply a general. She was a judge who led beyond the battlefield. In all of this, we were reminded that God's uh, chosen leader is not simply rescue, but also rules. In this story, you will see again and again God raise up someone to deliver. But with, with Deborah, there's this sliver. And then with the, the very end, with, with Judges 21, where there's no king, so everyone's doing what's evil in, their, uh, in the sight of the Lord because they're doing what's right in their own eyes. And you feel this. You feel this of like there's no, there's no leader who's going to rule, who's going to govern, who's going to help, who's going to guide. This little sliver of here's, here's a godly leader caring for, serving the people. But first and foremost, we must know she is a prophet. This story does not hinge on what dispute or international conflict will she mediate or settle. No, what will she say? What's Deborah about to say? The prophet Deborah in verse 6, she summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? <clears throat> Go, deploy the troops on Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, his chariots, and his infantry at the Wadi Kushan to fight against you. And I will hand him over to you. That's what she tells him. She summons Barak, Barak. Barak comes, and this is what? The Lord, Yahweh, the covenantal Lord, creator, has told you to take 10,000 men, and he, the Lord, will hand over Sisera and his army to you. Go. Go. You've been summoned, Barak. Here's your moment. God's going to use you to show off his powerful might once again. Do you feel that? You're like, man, okay, it's Brock. This is the guy. You know, for some of you, it's like 2008. You know, you're like, oh, yeah. Okay, that was my only one. I'll stop. <laughs> I didn't write that down. I didn't plan it. I'll not do it anymore. But God's going to use you, Brock, to show off his powerful might once again. Brock, what do you say? 
What do you say to the Lord? He's told you go. Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you'll not go with me, I will not go. Barak. Barak. <sighs> no, that's not change I can believe in. Sorry. Uh, God told you to take 10,000 men and go. And unlike some of us parents, God, when he says something, he means it. And he wanted his kids to know his word is truthful, trustworthy. When he says that he means it, he's going to be with you. He's going to hand the enemy over to you. Now, this appears quite cowardly, right? In my opinion. Quite cowardly. And it might be. It might be. It might be cowardice. It might be fear with Barak that he will not enter the fray unless he has this woman holding his hand. And that impression is reinforced by her response. I'm just terrified. can't go by myself. Go with me. I, I won't go without you. In 2006, the distinguished Reverend Ice Cube once said, repeatedly and angrily said, if you're scared, go to church. And that derogatory comment was close. It's close. If you're scared, go to Jesus. If you're scared, go to Jesus. You don't conquer your fears by facing them. You conquer your fears by facing Jesus and letting him walk with you through them. That, that's how you face them. That's how you address them. And that's a sad thing. With, if this is what's happening with him, with Barak, he's scared not trusting what God has promised. But, but at a deeper level, the objection may be about her status, maybe about Deborah's presence. Maybe his request to have the prophet with him is a plea for the presence of God. That, that if, if, if she'll go with him, then he'll know that God is present with him and his army, and this will go the way he wants it to go. Or maybe this is a way he can control that. A way that he can control that God is present and will give him the victory. I, and I think we, really like to have control over the outcome. Control that guarantees success. Control that limits any possibility of failure. And the truth is, God's invisibility messes so much with our sense of control. Is he present? Is he with me? Will this really happen? His invisibility demands faith in things not seen. And faith in God and control over my future often bump heads. And that's why idols are tempting. 
That's why we need to read Judges. This is a warning book of that Calvin comment that our hearts are perpetual idol factories, that we are tempted, lured, enticed throughout life to, to look at, to be attracted to, to give our hearts over and our allegiance and our praise and our life and our habits to something other than Jesus. Idols are calling, calling, calling. And with that desire for control or that desire to control God's presence or for that desire to have some sense controlled by some presence, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons I think screens are so tempting. You're not alone. You're in the presence of your phone. You can rest. Or if you go out somewhere, and you realize it's not on your person, and you start freaking out. Yeah, why? Because I, I want that sense of presence. I want that sense of something is there, something is with me, something is uh, together with me, walking with me at all times. I need someone with me at all times. Yeah, that's a really good desire, but your phone is a terrible savior. All right. You can control presence. And a wonderful technological tool turns into an idol you can't live without. You can turn on your screen at home, your TV, your phone, and have other people interpret the world for you. Tell you exactly what this event means. Tell you exactly how to think about this trend. Meaning you, you have access to an idol at all times that will tell you this way to think or this way to think or this way to think, and you get to just listen and hear all the ideas of this tiny, impotent God that's no God, but we place them in that position. Now, whether it's fear or the presence thing with Barack, I call balk either way. <laughs> I call balk. Now, if you don't know uh, baseball, sorry, that's when you make a misstep and there are consequences, okay? Verse 9, Deborah, the prophet, responds. I will gladly go with you, she said. Now, literally, in the original language, that, was, I, that is, I will certainly go with you. So that this isn't just encouraging w words of a strong woman to a weak-willed man. That's not just what this is. The timing is critical. In, in the other call narratives of Scripture, particularly Old Testament, at this moment... When, when the person has some resistance, that's, this is the moment when Yahweh promises his personal presence to a reluctant agent. When Moses is like, no, no, not me. God is like, I'm going to be with you. When someone's resisting or negotiating, that's when God says, I will be with you. Now, reminder, obedience is doing what is expected of you immediately thoroughly and cheerfully. That's how we talk about it in our home. That's what I said a few weeks ago to you. The prophet here speaks as God's spokesperson. I will certainly go with you, but now there's a consequence. 
she goes on to say, you will receive no honor on the road you're about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. No honor now. That's the consequence. It started off with, the Lord has, pro- has told you, go, I will hand them over to you. And now it's, there's no honor. The Lord will not give sister over to you, but to a woman. You ask for a woman's help, and she will get the honor. And you're like, pretty bold, Deborah, you know? It was very bold. I'm like, okay, I like that. I was like, okay, I'll go with you, but I'm going to get the honor, not you. Let's go. I'm like, okay, all right. Well, that's, that's awesome. That's a, that's a relationship. Let's see how this plays out. Verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had moved away from the Kenites, the sons of Hobab, Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent beside the oak tree of Zananim, which was near Kadesh. What? That's my response. What? Uh, I don't know what's happening. This is the time in a movie where my wife is like, are we supposed to know what's happening? Right? Like, what? Is this one of those that I should know what's happening? Like, you know what's happening? Or is this one of those that, like, none of the audience knows what's happening? It's in that time in a movie where you just jump to another scene, and now there's a new group of characters you don't know about in a different part of the country. Here we are, unexpectedly. Verse 12. It was reported to Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Wait, what? We just went back to Sisera. That was it. We only gave one verse to those guys. You, you meet them. There's some names, and there's where they live. What's happening? <laughs> Who's Habir? We don't know. This must be a clue. So just like a movie, the narrator brought these characters into play here because he's going to bring them back. This is your insert of this is what's going to happen, a little foreshadowing. So no, Habir, remember Habir, but verse 12 again. It was reported to Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned all his 900 iron chariots and all the troops were with him from Harosheth of the nations to the Wadi Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the, long, the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And I'm thinking, how is this, how is this timid warrior going to win? Because last time she told him to go, he was like, what, will you go with me? What's he going to do? How, is he going to win? What's going to happen? Verse 15. The Lord, that's what happens. The Lord threw Sisera, all his charioteers, all his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth of the nations. And the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. So God, God takes their biggest obstacle, their biggest fear, the iron chariots. If you remember, that's how they didn't succeed in the past because there's so many chariots in this location. That was their excuse. That was their justification. 
And God takes that, their biggest obstacle, and makes it a weakness for Sisera. We don't know exactly how yet. We'll see it next week when we get to the song about this. But I want you to know, you might be planning, you might be scheming to hurdle your obstacle, or you might be overwhelmed by fear and paralyzed to act. My note to you is, do you see the power of God here? Whether you're paralyzed by fear or whether you're trying to do on your own effort, white knuckling, your next hurdle obstacle, can you just see here the power of God? The mighty Sisera has abandoned his chariot. Like his fortress, the thing that was like their, their big thing. This is how they're going to win this war. Is their chariot. He's, he's running away from it. Now he's running away. The power of God here, he's bigger than your obstacles. God is bigger than your fears. He's stronger than your weakness. He's stronger than all your enemies. This is a spark where you don't, you don't stiff arm this story and think about the story, but you see yourself in the story and see, yes, this is the same God. These, these obstacles look different, fears look different, but this is my God. This is the one that has the power. So when I'm suffocating, looking at that what's up on the horizon of my life and I'm scared, maybe out of control, fearful of what might happen, I need to remember and believe and trust this is my God. This is the one that crushes. He doesn't just jump over hurdles. He crushes them. Sin has been stabbed. Death had someone walk away from it. Like a terrifying car crash and you see someone get out of it and we're like, that's what happened to death. Someone walked away from it. That's the power of God. Hell has been secured for the evil one. That's the power of God. And now you see Sisera fleeing, running away, trying to get away. Is he going to get away? Well, here's the power of God. Deborah stated, Barak, you won't get the honor a woman will. So I'm like, let's go, Deborah. Or like my aunt, let's go, Deb. Come on. Verse 17. Meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot to the chin of jail. The wife of, oh, here we go, Haber. That's why he's there. The Kenite. Because there was peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the family of uh, Haber. I'm going to keep saying Haber, I'm sorry. The Kenite, like a treaty. This is like a treaty, like an alliance here. This, I think some of your versions say that friendly relations. No, this is more than just like they know of one another, friendly with one another. No, they have alliance with one another. Verse 18, Jehovah went out to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord, come in with me, don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Now, not like your down rug, but like a, a goat skin rug. That's what you should imagine. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. She opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him again. And he said to her, stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes and asks you, is there a man here? Say no. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg 
grabbed a hammer and went silently to Sisera. This, you should, you should, this feels like CI ops right here. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground. And to be clear, <laughs> he died. <laughs> I love that phrase. It's like, oh yeah. I was wondering. <laughs> I was wondering. Can you just, you just shove things through people's temple? How does that work out? Not Deborah. What? Not Deborah. But Jael, an ally of Sisera. She was at home, and God guides Sisera to her, and God sells Sisera to this woman. The honor is hers, Barak. Now, like Eglon, the, the king of Moab, last week, Sisera is seduced by her words. And, and it's not clear, right? Like, she says, come on, come on. She's, she's yeah. And it's not very clear about this substitution. You see that substitution? She's like, he's like, I'm thirsty, water. And she's like, milk. And, and I'm like, she's like this, you know? There's something there. She's like, <laughs> he asked for water. It's not clear, but it does seem, seems her substitution of milk for water was intentional. And either it was for him to help him go to sleep, like milk can, or to kind of intensify that mothering I'm here for you. I'll take care of you. It's okay. I got to go grab something. Right? That's <laughs> Verse 22. The honor's hers, Barak. When Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man you're looking for. She doesn't need to wait. Didn't need a, that guy to come and say, hey, is there a guy here? He doesn't need to follow Sisera. No, lies. Tell, tell them no. No. I'll tell you. So he went in with her. And I think he's probably expecting her, him to be cowering, maybe in a corner, ready to be handed over, maybe in cuffs, maybe tied to something. And there was Sisera lying dead with a tent peg through his temple. There's silence here from Barak. Nothing, nothing that he does or says gets communicated in this story. But being that he pursued after Sisera, seems a little like he's running after the glory and in a flash, gone. Gone is the victory. Now, without any theological explanation, Jael is a mystery. Her deeds are recorded, but they're not approved of. They're not condoned. And it adds really to the mystery of divine providence that God is able to incorporate the free activities of human beings into his plan for his own glory and the salvation of his people. It's amazing. Now notice this is violence. I know this is intense. but I want you to see the deliver you do have. I want, to see the, I want you to see the rescuer that you really have. The judge, the good ruler, the good governor you really have. But first, the last little section. That day, God subdued 
King Jabin of Canaan for the Israelites. The power of the Israelites continued to increase against King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed him. Now, some folks want to make this text all about ladies overthrowing oppressive patriarchy. I get that, but it's, it's not that. What this is about is two women's role in Yahweh's overthrowing the oppressive Canaanites. This, this story is crafted not for us to interpret it about gender roles right now. What this story is crafted about, the headline is this. Salvation is provided by God. That's the point. He's the chief operator. He's the one pulling the strings. He's the one raising up generals. He's the one deploying armies. He's the one dictating strategy. And he's the one, in the end, affecting victory. In the end of this narrative and in the song in chapter 5 that's written about this, it's all about celebrating the saving work of Yahweh. Now think about the story. Think about this story. Think about how stories shape us. How they help us make sense of good and evil up and down. How they inspire us. How they challenge us. How they reveal us. And so as we finish the story, I want to ask you, what are you asking? What are you asking God to be delivered from? When you read a story like this and you see people in oppression, you see people uh, in something stuck or an obstacle, and you see them rescued by God, this should make you think, what's going on in my life? What, what's happening? And what am I maybe dealing with on my own volition? What am I dealing with maybe in my own effort? What am I looking to my own intellect, my own strength, my own uh, uh, network, my own resources, my own maybe just people that I have in my life? What am I doing? To wrestle with this, do this, and just stop doing that and ask the Lord to deliver you from. But first, I really want you to remember your deliverer. Meaning, I, make a, I really want to make that question just, what are you going to ask Jesus to deliver you from? Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's your own thoughts. Maybe it's, it's even that. And today, you need to believe maybe some aspect of what he's already done for you. You need to remember, recall, and believe what he's already delivered you from. Uh, we also need to think about how, how will we worship, how will we respond with him like as a living sacrifice. whether it be drowning in debt in the midst of that terrible conflict with your spouse whether it's being like just feeling stuck at your dead end job that has no hope and no future and you don't know what to do or whatever is in your life right now is like a massive rock that you can't move past and you can't get it out of the way. 
my idea is that maybe the issue for a lot of us is that we're not asking. I told you last week, I don't know how genuine the Israelites' repentance is or cry out to the Lord is, but what I want us to see is they cry out. Again and again, they cry out to him. And then secondly, from the story, I, I think it raises the question, what is God calling you to do? Or maybe it's surprising, maybe it's unexpected like Barack, maybe you've been asked to do something by another person, or maybe God is just saying this, this, this role, this need, be present with this person, take on this responsibility, befriend this neighbor, befriend this coworker that doesn't know Jesus, commit to this path. These kind of moments when leaders like this are called, it should make us think of, have I been maybe ignoring something? May I have been giving a deaf ear to God speaking to me? Maybe I've heard it, but I've made up that excuse already, and then so I've turned away from it and disregarded it. I mean, it could be something simple in our church. It could be be baptized. It could be become a member, become, it could be lead a group, be, become a pastor. It could be something in our city, it could be serve a need, serve in government, help your kids' school, help the kids in the school next door to us, serve at the Pregnancy Help Center. I just want to lay out a few things, this is not it, I'm just saying, these are the questions that I think come up from this story that we ask ourselves. But all from the point the place, the position of victory. That instead of driving a tent stake through another person's temple, your real deliverer takes tent stakes into his arms and legs to bear your sin, to bear your penalty to address your disobedience, to cover over your adulterous prostitution that God says of when we worship idols, when we turn to anything other than him and love it more than him. And we're, we're committing adultery on God and that's why tent stakes were driven into Jesus is to die for you, to die for me in my place for us. Not only delivers, but like Deborah, he also rules. Palm trees waved as he entered into Jerusalem and now he doesn't sit under a palm tree, he sits at the right hand of the Father ruling and reigning over the cosmos. So these questions that we raise, the stories that expose our hearts, the things that kind of mess with us, or, oh man, I am, I'm so much about control, all those things that get raised up or the Spirit is working in you all come to this point of like, yes, deal with this, address this, but 
God is calling you to do this by his grace and power, not your own. So lean into Jesus' victory. Lean into. Your enemies are defeated. Let's pray. Father, we... We ask these questions to you. Would you help us? Would you show us? Would you help us not think about this like Aesop's fables, just some, some moral point to this story, but would we see that you've put us in this story? You've called us into your story. And the people and the responses of the characters, Lord, I, I pray that you'd use them to guide us, to raise questions in our mind that we would take to you and that you would help us. Jesus, thank you.